Philippians chapter number 2 tonight, I'd like to read just a few verses, and I want to preach to you on being lights in the world around us. Beginning in verse number 12, Paul says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do, of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity to be here on a, on a Wednesday night in the house of God. Nobody's beating down our doors. Nobody's threatening us with arrest. But we've met under freedom this evening. And uh, we can be bold. We can be public. We can be uh, outspoken about our faith in you and about what you've done in our lives. And how dare we take lightly that privilege Let us commit ourselves afresh and anew this evening through the preaching of your word, through our yielding of our hearts to it. Let us commit afresh and anew to be the kind of witnesses you'd have us be. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, the church at Philippi held a special place in the heart of the Apostle Paul. Uh, In fact, you and I probably would not be sitting here today were it not for what God did in Paul's life in bringing him to the church at Philippi, or to the place Philippi. And uh, the, the great first western thrust of the gospel uh, found its initial place, the, the petri dish, if we can call it that, the, the, the spark of it, took place in this Macedonian city by the name of Philippi. Uh, everything about the book of Philippians, it deals with suffering, it deals with joy, of course it's a prison epistle, but there are these tones throughout the entirety of the book that deal with evangelism and missions and reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the first chapter, in fact, Paul talks about how he's in prison for preaching the gospel and how the other folks are preaching the gospel for nefarious reasons just to add to his burdens. But he says, hey, listen, that don't bother me. Whether it's for good reasons, whether it's for bad reasons, Christ is preached and therein do I rejoice. And he says these things have fallen out, him being in prison and the persecution he was suffering had fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. And that really is one of the great themes of the book of Philippians, the furtherance of the gospel. It should be no surprise to us that this theme would would be loud and, and in bold print as Paul was speaking to the church at Philippi. He came to Philippi through a Macedonian call. Amen. Uh, he saw a vision. Uh, and uh, a man said, come over into Macedonia and help us. Paul wanted to go east. He wanted to go into Asia, and the Holy Ghost forbade him from going into Asia. And I'm sure he wondered to himself, "Why, man, why would that be? Don't folks in, in Asia need the Lord? But there had been some folks in Macedonia that had been seeking truth, and God responded in His grace and mercy to their pursuit of truth, and gave forth that call and sent Paul to the city of Philippi, There, of course, you can read in Acts chapter 16 how he goes to a riverside prayer meeting, wins a woman by the name of Lydia to Christ. They begin to meet in her home, how that they take Paul and beat him and throw him in prison, much like what they're doing to these Chinese pastors in communist China. And uh, him and Silas, they just pray and shout and rejoice and just have church right there in that prison cell. I tell you, man, if I could have any of Paul's qualities, I don't want to be in a prison cell, but I do want to have the kind of Christianity that can make me sing and shout and worship and have church when I'm shackled up in a prison cell. Amen? I want a Christianity so real 
real and so passionate and so vibrant and so resilient that even in those circumstances, I'd find praise coming from my lips to the God that loves me and bought me. So it shouldn't be a surprise that God gave them this open door in Philippi. God had led them there. God had blessed the work there. It shouldn't surprise us that when he writes to the church at Philippi, one of his great themes is them being a witness and a light for the gospel. In fact, he says as much in verse 15, he says, "...among whom ye shine as lights in the world." Can I remind you before we get into the message that Christ made the statement that He was the light of the world. But then towards the end of His ministry, as He was getting ready to depart and go to heaven, He said, ye are the light of the world. What He was saying is this, that while I've walked amongst men, I've been a light to humanity, but I'm getting ready to go to heaven, and you in my stead and you in my power are going to take upon you the responsibility of being a light to this dark, dark world. I want to preach to you on that thought tonight of being lights in the world around us. If you want a more practical title, I would say this. Four key components to influencing others for Christ. I think often when we think about the the uh, the readying, uh, equipping ourselves for soul winning, we often think about what tracks we're going to carry, and we think about what verses we're going to quote, and we think about uh, whether we're going to use the Romans Road or the ABCs or whatever it is, wh- whatever tools and, and little memory tricks that we have that help us to remember a clear presentation of the gospel, none of which are bad things. But when Paul talks about them being a light in the wicked, crooked, perverse nation that they dwelt in, he instead focuses on four other things. We might say four bigger things, if we can say it that way. Things that deal more with how they live their life. And I want you to notice them with me tonight. Look at verse number 12. He says this, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, you've probably read that verse a hundred times. You've probably heard it preached on. And if you're like me, my mind and my attention immediately goes to that last phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I think a lot of the reason is because people warp that and twist that. And we'll say a word here in a moment about what it really means, scripturally uh, defined and, and, and rightly divided. But I don't want you to skip over the beginning part of that verse. Paul says, you've always obeyed my command. And now I expect you to obey my command, not just as much in my absence, but rather more in my absence than you even did in my presence. And it's a reminder to me tonight that the first thing we need, if we're going to be a witness, if we're going to influence others for Christ, reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, one of the first things that matters, preeminent almost above anything else, is our character. Character has been defined as what you are in the dark. Other people have said it this way, that your your conversation is what other men see you to be and your character is what God knows you to be. Your character, in other words, is what you will do because it is right, not because people are watching. And there's two things that Paul points to about the character of the people that he knew at Philippi. Many of these people, no doubt, he had won to Christ. And he said, I've noticed this about you. You have a solid record when it comes to following the truth of the Word of God. He says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed. You know what we have a tendency to do? We have a tendency to come into church and hear a message and God stirs our heart and we decide, hey man, we're going to get our life right, we're going to start living right, we're going to go out there and we're going to reach the world for Christ. 
And then we walk out those doors and the hymnal music isn't playing, the preacher isn't preaching, we're not surrounded by God's people anymore, and we begin to waver. And all of a sudden, the commitments that we made at this altar don't hold the same weight to us in the parking lot that they did at the front of the church. Listen, we need, and, and let me just use this word, it's not in anywhere in my notes, but I think it, it, it's a good word to use here, the word consistency. You're going to have a hard time being a witness of the gospel if you're not consistent. Anybody can be great for just a moment. But it takes a real commitment to Christ to maintain a consistency in your walk. You know what? I, and I'll say this as a pastor. I made the statement before we had the offering. Man, I'm encouraged by this good crowd on a Wednesday night. Let me tell you something. As your pastor, I'd rather you be good all the time than great only occasionally. And I believe the Lord's the same way. He would rather you be consistent in your walk with Him. They had a solid record. Man, they weren't in one second, out the next second. They weren't witnessing for a month at a time and then taking six months off. They were consistent. And I think very often it appeals to, to our flesh. It, there's a sense of self-aggrandizement to this concept of trying to be as great as we can be for a, a, a week at a time or a month at a time. But I'll tell you something, the Christian race is run and won by running steadily. Running steadily. By just keeping a a consistent pace living for the Lord. They had a solid record. But I want you to notice their sense of responsibility. He says, you've obeyed always in my presence. And, And I find this fascinating. He says, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And I find that interesting. As a father, I find that interesting. I want my son to obey all the time. And I would think to myself that sort of making that statement, not just the way you've obeyed in my presence, but I want you to obey more, it almost bespeaks the notion that it's okay to slack off whenever I'm around, but when I'm not, it's something different. But I think here's what Paul's getting at. He's saying, when I was there laboring amongst you, you always obeyed and you were committed and you you were settled and you were solid. But when I had to leave, and when you got word that I was in prison, when you knew I wasn't going to come back, you stepped up instead of stepping out. You know what I find very, very common in Christianity and Christian people? A tendency to run off of the fumes of momentum and energy. There's a lot of churches today, and this you're seeing this all around. That, listen, we are, we are a, a rarity meeting on a Wednesday night and having prayer meeting. That's not a common thing. You know what most churches are doing? Most churches are ditching their midweek prayer meeting, they're ditching their Sunday night, and they're having only a Sunday morning service. And they focus all their attention towards that because they're trying to build a ton of energy towards doing that. And they do that because they know they can get six, seven, eight hundred, uh, two, three, four thousand to show up for an hour at a time. But they know if they asked any more of that of them, that very often they wouldn't have the same kind of participation and excitement and energy. The fact is, as believers, our, our, our concept about serving the Lord, about faithfulness, should not be, I'll do it if others do it. It should be, I'll do it even if I'm the only one doing it. And let me go a step further. It should be, it's all the more important for me to do it if other people are not doing it. Paul said, man, whenever I had to step away, you didn't step out, you stepped up. 
You sensed that the ministry needed you. You sensed that the work of God needed you. And in, instead of following a crowd, instead of getting discouraged, instead of losing morale, you stepped up and said, I will fill that role. I will take on that responsibility. I will be the one. It's the reason that the Old Testament, the psalmist talked about that you can find people all around, but he says, but a faithful man, who can find? It's easy to find fervent people. but It's hard to find faithful people. Paul says, when I look at your life, I could tell your character by the fact that when things got tough, you didn't walk away. When I had to leave, here he is locked in prison. He said, you didn't walk away. Instead, you stepped up and you took responsibility. It's going to take character if we're going to reach people for Christ. Now, here's the phrase that when we read that verse that our eyes are drawn to. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, a lot of people, the Church of God and the Church of Christ in particular, and really any any denomination that believes you can lose your salvation, has always tried to point to this verse as being proof that we have to work our way to heaven. They'll say, well, you know, the Bible says clearly we got to work out our salvation. But when it says work out your salvation, it, it's not saying work it out in the sense of figuring it out. It's not saying work it out in the sense of uh, of make it happen. It's not saying work it out in the sense of achieve it. But rather, when it says work out, literally what it means is to fully finish something. Take the idea of a carpenter. A carpenter that's building something. And he may have the structure built. It may be completely fully structural. And the last thing he does on that thing is the finish work. Let me tell you, I I did a little bit of carpentry work. And I won't tell you where because some of y'all might live in some of these houses. But... I, I did a little bit, and I was a, I was a finished carpenter. I was a, what they call a trim carpenter. And I would come in after everybody was all, always done. And there, there's a sort of, there's a pecking order on a construction site, you know. The framers show up, and man, they ain't gotta get anything square. I mean, that, nothing has to be square when the framers walk away. Because they know that after them, that the trim carpenters are gonna come in. And they're gonna cover everything up, and they're gonna kinda square everything best as they can. And then the trim carpenters say, well, I may not get it quite right, but that's okay because the painters are coming in after me. And if anything ain't right, man, they'll just, they'll just spackle it, they'll just caulk it, they'll just paint it. And I'll tell you this, that I I know how some of these houses is built. I worked in them, uh, these cookie-cutter houses. I, I hate to tell you, man, but there's some of them that's being held together by finishing nails. There really are. But as it should be, it should be that the finished work is not what gives structural integrity to the house. It's what beautifies it. It's what fully finishes the project. But it is not the foundation. It is not the fortitude, the strength, and the structure of the building. In that same sense, that's what Paul's talking about. My pastor used to say it this way, that God didn't say to work it in. He said to work it out. And what it means is to put the finishing touches on it. When he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he's not saying, make sure and and work and, and earn your salvation. He's saying, Christ has given you a foundation. He is the foundation. He's saved you completely and comprehensively. And one day, he's going to do that finishing work himself. But in the meantime, you ought to be trying to beautify your outward life to be in keeping with the inward work that God has done in you. And I jotted it down this way. We see the outgrowth of their faith. The outgrowth. Let me say it this way. Our character is important. But number two, our conversation is vital. It's vital. People have to know that they can trust you. But they also have to see in you righteous living. 
for you to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ. I know tons of people that are perfectly consistent in their disobedience. (laughs) In fact, it's the only thing they're consistent at. I know people that are perfectly consistent in ungodliness, in compromise. But Paul says, listen, I, I, I want you not just to be consistent, I want your conversation to be right. I want what's going on on the outside of your life to match what God's doing on the inside of your life. And we need to recognize that though God may see our heart, and God may not look on the outward appearance, but on the inward heart, man does look on the outward. Those people you're trying to reach for Christ, they can't see your heart. They can only see your life. And they're going to decide what they think about Christ by the way a Christian lives. He mentions the outgrowth of their faith. But notice, he does not leave it simply up to us to sort of determine our way to a right style of living. He says this, For it is God which worketh in you. He says, Work out your salvation. And here's why. Because it is God that worketh in you, both to do two things, to will and to do of His good pleasure. So that tells me this, that the outgrowth of my faith is going to be deeply connected to the ingrowth of my fellowship with Him. I was typing this out today and... Microsoft tried to tell me the ingrowth wasn't a word. I thought, well, you ain't never had an ingrown toenail, amen? Because that's what it's doing. That's ingrowth. It ain't outgrowth, it's ingrowth. The ingrowth of our fellowship. In other words, the only way the outgrowth of our life is going to be consistently right is if we are walking with the God that injects and infuses into our life both the will and the performance of His good pleasure. In other words... People don't become capable, consistent, and effective, and powerful, and influential Christians on accident. It takes place because they've been walking with God. And I'll tell you this, that your private prayer life is going to do much more to determine your public uh, preaching, proclaiming, witnessing life than anything else. If you're not spending time with God in the closet, then you're never going to be an effective witness for God in the world. The Bible says, in fact, that we're to pray to our Father in secret. He'll bless us outwardly and openly. And while that is true about many things in life, what more important thing could we be praying about than winning people to Christ? So we ought to be praying in our closet. And when we do that, it's going to extend outwardly. It's going to change the way that we live. Our conversation has to be right. Let me give you a third thing. And it's sort of connected to character. But look at verse 14. He says this, Do all things... Without murmurings and disputings. You know what that is? Murmurings and disputings. This is, uh, the, the, this is what the, the Hebrew, Greek, Toby Weber concordance lexicon definition is. You ready? Murmurings are fussing and disputings are fighting. So what he's saying is this. No fussing and fighting amongst the people of God. Do everything without murmurings, meaning to complain or disputing, meaning to, to, uh, to fight, to argue one with another. He says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Why is that important? He says that you may be blameless and harmless. In other words, so that there is no criticism of who Christ is coming from the outside into your life or upon your life or upon your testimony. And so that there's not going to be any damage that is being emitted from your life onto other people. It ought to be, in other words, you've seen these things if you've ever gone hiked on a trail that says something like this, to take only pictures and leave only footsteps. You ever said that? Usually there's a candy wrapper laying right down beside the sign, so I don't think it does much good. 
But in the same way, hey, listen, in our life, we ought, we ought to, to only take an opinion of Christ that glorifies the Lord and only leave a testimony of Christ that's a blessing for others. Let me use this term, credibility. Our credibility. Uh, in other words, our, our external testimony, what people see when they see our life, and what they consequently think of Jesus Christ. Notice the standard of behavior. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. In other words, it ought to be that we're seeking as much as, as uh, in us is, we ought to live peaceably with all men. You're not going to be able to live peaceably with everyone, but as much as in you is, live peaceably with all men. And do so to the end. And this ought to be the metric. This ought to be the acid test for our conduct. Is there any way in which Christ can receive reproach from what I'm doing? Is there any way somebody could look at what I'm doing and draw from it a wrong or bad conclusion about Jesus Christ? And number two, is there anything that's going to be produced by what I do that's going to harm others and give them reason to turn away from Jesus Christ? And this is why that's so important, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke. Hey, listen, there's going to be times people's going to lie about you. But we ought to be like Daniel. Listen, when they wanted to uh, catch him doing something, they had to catch him doing something right. Because they couldn't catch him doing something wrong. He was without rebuke. And that ought to be the metric, the, the, the desire, the goal in our life. We see the standard of behavior. And here's why. Because look at those standing beholding. He says, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Let me tell you something. There probably ain't nobody in this room that wouldn't amen me if I was to say that right now, though she's the greatest nation in the world, America is a crooked and perverse nation. I mean, when we talk about this nation being crooked, I, I don't. you probably don't watch the news and you're probably smarter than me if you don't. But seeing this mess of this guy that perpetrated this hate crime hoax in Chicago and, you know, they had 16 felony counts against the guy. And then they just, whoop, they just decided out of the goodness of their hearts that they're just going to drop all those charges. As long as he'd, he'd let them have that $10,000 bond that he paid, uh, they could see clear to forgive. Uh, that crime. Of course, it, it, and I'm sure it probably don't matter that the state's attorney general is close friends with uh, somebody that is, uh, was part of the Obama administration and somebody that has deep ties in politics there. That probably don't matter. I'm just cynical, you know. Crooked world we live in. Crooked world we live in. You got people sitting in prison tonight over Stuff that ought to be nothing but a slap on the wrist. you got people in high positions of government that have killed people. Crooked world we live in. It's a crooked world. It's a perverse nation. It's a perverse nation, man. I mean, it, it, they're just they're running as fast and hard as they can to legalize the murder of children. And it's been legal for 40 years to murder children. But they're, they're not satisfied with that. They've got to go further. They've got to go further. But now let me ask you this. You amidden me? I'd amen me if I was sitting where you was at. But you ready to take up the mantle of the next statement? Among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Oh, it's all good, friend, to complain. It's all good to moan. It's all good to say, hey, how dare this world be so wicked. But don't you realize that the darker this world is, the easier and brighter it is for us to shine as lights. Your credibility, your testimony... And notice the final thing, and I'm done tonight. Look at verse 16. 
He says this, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. It's going to take commitment. It's going to take commitment. Probably the great crisis of the church today, our church, every church, is a lack of commitment. We all want to be on the outskirts. We all want to be tangentially connected. We all want the benefits without the accountability. And I'm just here to tell you, listen, I ain't mad at you. I hope you're not mad at me. But I'm here to tell you that if we're going to do the work God has called us to do, it's going to take more commitment than that. If we just want to gather in here and have preaching and have a little piano playing, a little singing, have some choir and feel good about ourselves and shout and, and feel like we got a good church and oh, it's, it's warm and it's friendly and everything and then just walk away and never touch the world around us, it ain't going to take no commitment. But if we're going to be what God has called us to be, it's going to take commitment. It's going to take commitment. It's going to take rearranging our life. It's going to take stepping outside of our comfort zone. It's going, it's going to take us stepping into roles that we don't think we're fit for. And God's going to have to make us fit for it. It's going to take commitment. Commitment to what? Two things. One, commitment to the scriptural faith. He says, holding forth the word of life. That term, holding forth, you know what it means? To detain or to retain. It means to grab hold of and not let go of. Holding forth the word of life. A lot of churches today that their mantra is to be culturally relevant. I, listen, there is a culture war going on in, in, in our country. Uh, I don't know that that culture war is necessarily Christianity against secularism. I think there's a part of that. I think there's an element of that. I, I certainly think that the world's culture is always going to be in direct contravention to the truth of Scripture. Christ said, the world hates me, and that's as true today as it was the day they nailed him to a cross. But churches desire to be culturally relevant. Now, I don't think we ought to go out of our way to try to seem weird or to try to seem odd. We are to be peculiar. But we ought not go out of our way to be weird or odd. In other words, it ought not be that the thing that drives us is to be contrary to the culture, but rather what ought to drive us is to be true to Scripture. And if our commitment is to be true to Scripture, we won't have to make an enemy of culture. Culture will make an enemy of us. Some churches, though, go the other direction, and their desire and ambition is to be as culturally relevant as possible. That is their goal. And I'm here to tell you that is completely scripturally uh, uh, backwards, It is not in keeping with the truth of God's Word. Nowhere, nowhere, nowhere will you find in this King James Bible where we are commanded to be relevant to the culture. We are always commanded to be true to the Scripture. We are never commanded to be relevant to the culture. And again, that doesn't mean irrelevance ought to be a goal in and of itself, but it does mean scripturality, scripturalness, a commitment to the truth of God's Word, the Word of life. What have we done if we've abandoned the Word of life? We ain't got nothing that can help anybody. This whole world is dead in trespasses and sins. The only thing that can help them is the word of life. If we abandon this to try to reach them, we don't have anything to reach them with. We ought to have a commitment to the scriptural faith. But don't ever forget, you and I, we also, whether we like it or not, we ought to have a commitment to our spiritual forefathers. Paul closes with this statement. He says, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. You know what he's saying? He's saying, boy, I hope you stick with it because I've sure put a lot of time into you people. That's what he's saying to the church at Philippi. He's saying, boy, I hope you stick in because here I sit in this prison cell. Here I sit having paid a price and much of that price was paid so that I could win you 
so that I could invest in you, so that I could labor for you. And he says, it would sure break my heart to find out that I had labored in vain. You know, listen, like it or not, we owe a debt to the people that came before us, that fought, that labored. We listen, we've never had to worry about police coming busting through our doors. But if you go back through our spiritual ancestry, there was a time people did have to be scared of it. But there's faithful and they stood and they labored and they witnessed and they paid a price. We owe our ultimate debt to the Lord Jesus Christ, but let us also never forget that we do owe a debt to our spiritual forefathers, people that labored. Listen, you're here tonight because somebody loved God and loved you enough to pray for you, to put a gospel track in your hand, to bring you to church, invite you to church, to witness to you. They invested in your life. You owe them a debt. Let us never forget it, man. Hey, listen, the, the Bible likens the, the uh, Christian with the Word of God to a sower with seed in his hand. And that seed, it's representative of two things, of the past and of the future. It's life that once was, and it's life that will be again. And every bit of it is held in the hand of the sower. And he holds the entire, not just the next generation, he holds the whole future in his hand. If he neglects to sow... There'll be no harvest. And the same thing's true for you and me, man. What's the seed? It's the Word of God. And we hold it in our hand. We have the past. We have the future. And if we won't sow, then how can there ever be a harvest? We're going to have to have these four things. Character. We're going to have to have our conversation right. We're going to have to have credibility with the people around us and a commitment to live for the Lord if we're going to see this world changed for Christ. Let's pray together tonight. As a musician comes to play, the altar is open. You have an opportunity. You've had this opportunity the whole time, but we have set this side of time, this time aside so that you can come, find a place at this altar, ask the Lord to work in your heart about these things. It is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So won't you come meet with Him? You say, Preacher, I wish I wanted to serve Him more. Well, come talk to Him. He's the one that puts in your heart to will. Say, preacher, I want to serve him, but I, I just don't know how to do it. Well, come talk to him. He's the one that worketh in you to do of his good pleasure. And I promise you this, inactivity, unresponse, is never going to change you or change the world around you. You've got to respond to the Lord if you want him to work in your life.